0: Shalom aleichem. I'm Aaron Lansky, and I'm here today with Krista Whitney, a member of our staff and the director of our Wexler Oral History Project. Welcome, Krista. Hi. So uh, I have a million questions or so for you today because I know an awful lot's happening with the oral history project, and I want to talk about it from all all different angles. But I'm going to start out with your own trajectory on this. Okay. So. You came to the Book Center, you were an intern, and then you were a fellow here, and you were here the very first year of the fellowship program, right? Yeah,
1: I was the first fellow.
0: Oh, the very first one. Yeah. Well Yeah. So somehow, <laughs> that first year was a little more freewheeling than it's become in years since. It was sort of, what would you like to do? And somehow, very quickly, your project became oral history. So how come and why did that suit you?
1: Well, um, It was an idea that had been floating around the book center. I didn't um, make it up by any means, any stretch of the imagination. Um, At the beginning, it was uh, my two fellow fellows and I that were all working on it together. Um, Milena Chinsky and Jessica Antoline were the other fellows at that time. And um, I think there's something about oral history that just... that. That seemed to work with my with me. Um, uh, I've always loved stories, and being a literature major, maybe that was some of the attraction. Um, I wasn't too daunted by the technical part of it either, so that was helpful. Th-
0: thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So we we um, we brought in uh, Jane Guberman of the Jewish Women's Archive um, just to help us figure out what we wanted to do, and we went through a lot of debates about pretty much every um aspect of the project audio video um you know how many interviews are we going to do what are they what what are we going to be asking people All, all sorts of things some some of some most of them we've figured out by now some of them are still you know being refined as we go along but yeah.
0: so uh, let's let's start with the audio video divide because I remember I was advocating for audio And, and I pers- was too. Oh, you were you're were right. So why do we do video again? I forgot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that we realized that um, that well one of the arguments the main argument for audio is it's more relaxed. you know you can you can be in an office and and also it's a lot cheaper too. that was <laughs> that's not no small thing. but I think we realized that, Um, since we were going for that this this project was going for um, having people connect to the stories and that a lot of our audience was potentially going to be through the internet that it just made sense to do video I mean there you also do get what they say in the oral history world, you get more information. And that is not, not that you get more dates if someone is behind a video camera, right, but, right. but you, you get to sort of meet the person in a different way. Um, and also it's turned out that since a lot of the products that come out of these interviews um, are short stories, you know, 30 seconds to five minutes and Th- the these are these are excerpts guess, excerpts from the hour to hour and a half interviews and that really makes sense to do in video you know if if i'm people are on youtube all the time
0: yeah. and
1: and and we're used to watching that length of video um, of course we also it's all, our full length videos are available for download in audio if you want to take them with you but we felt that you know as a way to connect to the next generation, and to connect also to the people being interviewed that video made sense. Yeah.
0: So, 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 it's now been a few years that we've been at this, right? And over the course of that time, it's become increasingly central to what we're doing here. You know, it started out as sort of a little tangential project is suddenly taking up a lot of the space of the organization. And the argument that we make is, it's just an extension of the work we began collecting stuff. You know, we we started out by saving books before it was too late, but now there's this huge reservoir of stories out there that also need saving. So now that you've been at it for a while, are the two really comparable? Can you make a case of of kind of similar importance?
1: Yes, I think that the distinction is that you know these people talk back. When you have a book, you're you know it's it's already been written, and so the exciting thing about oral history interviews or interviews um, in general is that you have a live person there in front of you, and and if you have you get to ask that question. You know what is the alternate ending of this book? You know right, what? Right, right. Um, and so we get to ask really pointed questions. About issues that we're dealing with on a daily basis here at the Book Center, with all of our other projects too. I mean, asking questions about asking a Yiddish student why they became interested in Yiddish isn't isn't just a good story. It's also informs the way that we run our programs and asking um, people involved in the arts, you know, their their take on the transmission of Jewish culture today. Um, can often um, result in a great story but also can inform our work.
0: Right. So I sometimes see people going downstairs. We have our Carmas studio downstairs and I, I see people ready, ready for their moment. Mr. DeMille, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to, to record their story and they're pretty well dressed for the occasion. You know, it, it's clearly a big deal for them. Uh, does that you know, does their formal dress in some way uh, 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 also extend to the way in which they behave during the interview? Are they very much on guard? Are they very scripted? Or do they ever just kind of loosen up and tell you what you really want to hear?
1: Well, there is an arc to an interview. So there are some sort of guidelines that you use in not in a manipulative way, but simply in a Interpersonal way. If this is the first time you've met someone, you're not going to jump in and say, "Well, so what is that, you know, great juicy story I heard about your stepmother?" Right. You know, you're going to ask them some basic questions first and 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 warm them up. You know, build some rapport before you go into the different questions. So the way that we 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 um, shape the interviews, we have a topic guide that is customized for each person based on research we do ahead of time. And and you think about, well, what, what sort of basic facts do you want to learn first that mm. then frame the more um, in-depth discussion later?
0: So can you give me an example? This might be a hard question to answer. Can you give me an example of something kind of magical that happened or how someone just really did open up in ways that surprised you?
1: Well, I think the most, um, the story that comes to mind, the person that comes to mind was actually my first interview ever, which was Wonderful and intimidating. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, sometimes you are interviewing someone and just they really get that you're listening. And there's a a power just in creating space for listening to someone. Um, You know, in a world where people are talking in sound bites and you know rushing around and and using texting as communication, there's something really. Special about sitting in in an interview and and getting to really have someone listen to you. Um, and so in that first interview, um, this is someone, a member of of the local community here, uh, who you know when he first came in, he sort of gave the ten minute version of his life story. He you mean ha-
0: like the the, the 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 packaged version, right? Yeah,
1: and then. I was kind of sitting there, I didn't, you know, this isn't how it's supposed to go, you know, I'm supposed to be asking the questions, you know, and now he's giving me the whole story, what am I supposed to do? But then, so he gave me that version, and then I said, okay, well, so, and and then I was able to ask a question afterwards, so I, I sometimes it surprises you, so I was asking him just about um, how his family came to this country, and I remember he had brought tea and biscuits to the interview. (laughs) And he puts down, he takes a sip from his tea, puts down his mug and says, looks at me and says, it's a very painful story. And then he launches into this amazing story of his parents' escape from the pogroms of Ukraine. And, And someone that I had just met half an hour before is in tears in front of me.
0: How do you know what to do? I mean, it's like a therapist sort of, right? I mean, what are you supposed to? Well,
1: I think, I mean, you don't want it to feel like a therapist in a way <laughs> because you don't really want people to tell you in that depth. But I think what it's really about is deep listening. If you are really listening to what what the other person is saying, then you you can see cues of, oh, maybe there's more to go into there or, you know, also the more, more interviews you do. And you, when you have a focus, um, you can know where to push a little bit or find more information. But, um, really I find if I just, you know, I do a lot of research beforehand and a lot of intellectual work beforehand, but I barely look at my notes during the interview because I just want to be looking at the person and listening to to them. Be there. Yeah.
0: So I remember when we had the initial training we brought in uh, Jane Guberman who's a really you know wonderful professional oral historian based in Boston and I know she still works with you on a, on a regular basis but the first time Jane came in I was also part of the group that was going to you know learn how to do this arcane craft and and remember the first thing she taught us was that you're supposed to just listen, you know? Nobody wants to hear from you. You know, when when you're doing an oral history, you've just got to let people talk. And to such an extent that Jane said, you're not supposed to laugh. You're not supposed to say, hmm. You're not supposed to say, uh. You're just supposed to kind of uh, listen. And I have to tell you, I found that, like, I was going to say difficult, but I think impossible might be the better word. I just kind of went against everything, you know, that, uh, just the way I relate with people. Why does oral history have those conventions, and to what degree do you subscribe to them?
1: Well, I think that an oral history or a life history interview um, is really focused on one person. And so I think, yes, you don't want to say um and, and uh-huh and laugh, but that's more for the tape. But I think that some of some of those rules also speak to just the honoring of the person that's being interviewed, that you're really it's really not about you. You really want to um, get as much of a pure view of of the narrator as possible. So even if I have a great connection with something that they're saying, I mean, there are ways to affirm that nonverbally a lot of nodding and smiling and and right, eye right. contact goes a long way um, but just just again in in a world where we're always going back and forth and it's always a debate to just let someone explain their own opinions hmm. without uh interruption can be can allow them to go in in depth or into detail in a way that might not happen at a dinner table
0: right I I know we've been talking about um, you know giving more intellectual priority to some of what we're doing in other words I think over time certain themes have begun to emerge and we want to go out and actually you know get the stories within a particular subject area not only waiting for people to show up here at the book center but for you actually to you know put one of those porta brace bags on your shoulder and head off into the world and start and start recording people start filming people what are those themes you know what's 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 emerged after a few years of doing this
1: um well i think that the going out into the field um, well maybe to back up we do have an open call here so that's an opportunity for people who just have a great jewish story that they yeah, want to tell to right. come here when we go out in the field, there are a few themes that we're looking for, um, and I think they really all center around um, cultural transmission. What cultural transmission and reinvention of culture? So, what what does um, you know what does Yiddish mean to people today, even if they're not speakers of it? um, what does it symbolize? How are people connecting to it? But beyond Yiddish too, you know, what is, um, what is living Jewish culture? And, and the people that we're going out into the field to interview are going to be people that are really involved with that process of creating new Jewish culture or contemporary Jewish culture. Meaning they're
0: they're aware of what they're up to.
1: Right. Um, and, so it could be performing artist. It could be an academic who's thinking about these questions a lot. It could mm. be um, a translator who who's you know literally translating a culture for a new mm. generation. But how um, how what does it mean to 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 take um, remnants of an Eastern European Jewish culture and reinvent them and make them relevant today
0: right. Um, right. to
1: a new audience, a new generation.
0: So I assume you're not just interviewing old people, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a wide range.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes this, the dialogue across the project so dynamic because mm. one day you're interviewing a native Yiddish speaker who was perhaps born in Eastern Europe and, um, and the next day, you're interviewing someone who just finished their first three-week Yiddish language intensive. Right. So mm. there, you you see the um, the dialogue in hmm. in 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 who you're um, interviewing, or if it's if it's someone who is involved in the first wave of the klezmer revival versus an up-and-coming artist. You know, you hmm. you see see the development there too.
0: Is one group more candid than the other, or more unguarded than the other?
1: Um, I think people who have been interviewed a lot are harder to interview.
0: <laughs> if <laughs> they that's have it what honed you mean. down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. I mean, it's natural if you're if you are interviewed a lot to have sort of a script that you go back to. Um. Mm. But also, I think it really depends. I think people, young people, can be really engaging and engaged in in this. Um. In thinking about these issues, um, when sometimes someone who's more established might have sort of come up with their answer and not be mm. thinking as critically, or the other way around, people. I mean, when I interviewed Theodore Bekele at at CLES Canada this this last summer, that was an amazing interview. I mean, and he's already written his autobiography, right. so going yeah. into the interview, I said I was thinking, oh my god, you know, what am I going to were, were you, ask were this you, person? Are you scared? Oh yeah, I was really nervous. I mean, that was one of the more intimidating people because, you know, when someone's written a four hundred page autobiography and it's Theodore Bickel, yeah. you know, how how are you going to ask a question that's going to be interesting? Um, but
0: but I saw some of what you, I saw some of the footage of that. It's phenomenal, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean he he's very, but, but but he was very forthcoming. I thought.
1: Yeah. Um. I think when someone may have been interviewed a lot of times, but they've not been in, interviewed by the Yiddish Book Center before. And I th- think there is something to be said for that, that hmm. when, when people come to an interview with the Yiddish Book Center, there are certain themes that they just naturally want to talk about that there may not be a lot of space otherwise in American Jewish culture to hmm. to talk about. So.
0: So I'm going to change tack here for a second. So anybody who's visited the book center and anyone who's had a whole tour of the place knows not only do we have this, you know, great recording studio, but if they walk further and they go past there and they go into the New Klarman Student Center, uh, we used to have three classrooms down there and now we'll only have two because you took one of them over. (laughs) And there's this whole fleet of young people who seem exceedingly uh, intent and they're all huddled over these gigantic Mac computer screens and even though they made them that big and, and they're all doing something all the time. What, what What is that all about? What are they up to?
1: Well, in a way, the interview is only the beginning of the process or maybe, you know, halfway yeah. through the process um, because then we want to figure out what's in the interview and um, sort of create usable excerpts from it. I mean, yes, there are people that are going to watch or listen to an hour to an hour and a half interview. Um, And we've had a lot of surprising number of people actually watching the full interviews on our... You should
0: just tell people how to do it, how how you watch these things. So
1: you you can either get to it from YiddishBookCenter.org or if you go to archive.org, which is the Internet Archive's website, and you search for Yiddish Book Center, you'll see the Wexler Oral History Project collection. And there you can watch... um, about close to half of our collection of things that have been processed thus far with an abstract and keywords and you can watch the video right there or you can download it um, or the audio version also right. um, so there are a few um, sort of things going on at the same time in that editing room down there one is getting it ready for the archive you know having some version of a summary and some keywords that make, the you can get a sense of what the interview is about but the the bigger job is to um to find the best excerpts the best stories within a a long interview so you know interviewing anyone there there will be when I leave the the let's say if I interviewed someone and I leave the recording studio I'll say wow you know these three stories were amazing right in that hour um and i want everyone to in the world to hear those three stories so so we have our interns in there um finding the stories that i may have indicated in in my little form that i fill out after the interview or things that i might not have realized were amazing or didn't remember right, right away
0: right 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 so so I have to tell a story in order to ask the question. So, sure. so some years ago, you know, we used to, we've always run these educational programs for adults here. I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, we did a, a really wonderful weekend conference on Jewish humor. And, you know, the place was packed. You got a hundred people all squeezed into the Dreiker you know, Applebaum Auditorium. And, uh, uh, oh the speakers were really engaging and I remember one night Moshe Waldox was there. He's a the guy who wrote the the big book of Jewish humor and he's he's a rabbi but he's mm-hmm. just a na- he's quite learned and he's also just a naturally funny person. So his talk was supposed to be actually illustrate you know it was supposed to be an academic talk about Jewish humor but because it all had to be illustrated with Jewish jokes it actually sounded more like a stand-up routine. And he's telling kind of one of these long you know Jewish you know, all these long Jewish jokes after another, and the people are laughing so hard that the tears are like rolling down their their cheeks, and and my wife Gail and I are sitting there, we could barely catch our breath, we're afraid people are going to have coronaries on the spot, you know, and in the meantime, it was during the summertime, and that summer we happened to have 12 interns in our Steiner program that year. And I look at one point, you know, everybody's laughing and laughing to the point of crying. And I look behind me and the 12 interns, because it was so crowded, they couldn't get chairs. So they were all standing up in the back of the room. And out of 12 interns, uh, 11 of them, not only were not laughing, they didn't even crack a smile. The only one who was laughing was one young woman who came from Mexico. So she didn't count. But the American kids, uh, they literally, you know, never cracked a smile. So afterwards, Gail and I went up to him. We said, how come you weren't laughing, you know? They didn't think it was funny. I mean, they literally didn't get the joke, which which leads me to conclude there is a, a a very strong generational aspect, not only to humor but to culture as well. And so, if those you know eleven out of the twelve had listened to some of these amazing interviews that we're we're, we're recording now, I'm not sure they would have known where the good part was. Like, I, don't, I just don't think they would have gotten it like there might have been something that would have just knocked you off the chair it was so funny and, they, and it might have just like gone right over their head so how do you do that and what's the you know do people do young people have the cultural as a general rule here uh, do young people have the cultural acuity to find the good part or do you have to find another way of going about this
1: well I think um, I mean part of what you're speaking to is a much bigger question of um, in continuity of of the transmission of Jewish Eastern European culture right. in America, for, and, right, so and you'll, and
0: you'll forgive the generalization. I don't right. mean to overdo it. No, but, no, but got, no. You know. But I
1: mean, I think that you're pointing something out that is that that there is an un- un- unfamiliarity with Eastern European um, humor and culture that makes it difficult to to have that sensibility among young people. I think that it really depends, and a lot of times. There will they will miss it, but um, a lot of our interns are well. They're all from the five colleges where we do have a we have professors that are um, teaching some of the um, Yiddish cultural uh, fields that, that right. maybe would be less less common in other um, in other areas. But also, we're thinking of new ways to 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 broaden the cast. So it's not only young people who are who are um, you know earmarking the best stories, but but a broader cast.
0: So. And what what does that mean in practice? Yeah.
1: Um, so the the idea is that that we will have a team of um, we're still thinking of the term treasure hunters, story scouts, something like that, who yeah. who will be able to. Um, Watch these interviews at home, people of, of any age uh, and pretty much anywhere in the world, because this will be going on right. digitally, will be able to watch an interview and and then send us back an email saying, you know, at minute 33, there's this amazing story. And, and that could very likely be something that our undergraduate intern... Might not have gotten and could have gone over their heads. Oh, that would so. be
0: great fun. So, so at some point, people can volunteer to do this, and you'll figure out how to train them. And, uh... Yeah,
1: yeah, we're still working out the detail, the technical details, but, yeah. um, but I, I'm really excited about this because I think it's also, um, sort of an opportunity for people to engage in in this cultural, in this uh, conversation as well.
0: That's great. All right, I've only got one more question, okay. but it's a good one. So, so, so. Uh, I know one other thing we've been talking about is the nature of expanding this project, but in a particular way. And that is that, you know, obviously, neither you nor the young people you work with can be absolutely everywhere at the same time. And I don't know, I travel all the time. It's very rare that I meet someone who doesn't have a great story to tell me. Everybody's got a story. It's just, you know, I think all human beings have great stories to tell. And certainly in the case of this Jewish world, my God, are people full of stuff that just... You know, everybody's like the ancient mariner who stopped this one of three, you know, and you, gotta, and you just have this, they just have, have to tell their story. So, uh, you know, I think the instinct nowadays when people want to involve a great many people is they do what they call crowdsourcing or they wiki, you know, you give people a chance to just go direct and, and deposit their stories directly. What does that mean for us? Is there some way in which we can kind of uh, make that happen?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, recording through the internet still has a ways to go. But one way that we're thinking about doing this is actually having a YouTube channel where people can upload their story directly. Um, So if you have an amazing family story that's been passed down that just needs to be a part of this collection, that you'll actually be able to record it, you know, if you are afraid of technology, grab your niece or nephew or grandchild and have them, you know, record you they, on their are, iPhone.
0: Oh, right. Just on the iPhone? Oh, yeah.
1: Could? I mean... And, ah, they
0: call this a Heinteckevelt. This is a modern world here. Okay. You know, yeah.
1: and then you'll be able to upload your your video um, or audio story directly to our um, channel.
0: And then people can see it on YouTube all over the world? Yeah. I love it. I love it. Oh, that's great, Krista. Anything else that we should tell people about in terms of new developments here? Or what's, you know, what's in the offing?
1: Um, well, there's just so much going on. It's hard to keep it all in my head. But you know, we are sending out a story of the week. So keep, if you want to get on that list, you can sign up at yiddishbookcenter.org. Um, and yeah, there's, just so, there's a lot to learn from these interviews. So I hope people will tune in.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much. This is the uh, Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, where you can find us online at yiddishbookcenter.org.